this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Matt Crisp. Matt is an accomplished executive with a strong background in rapid growth and early commercialization phases of technology companies. He holds a bachelor's degree in finance from Radford University. Prior to Benson Hill, Matt was the managing director at Third Security, which is a globally recognized venture capital firm. He was also the president of the Agricultural Biotech Division and senior vice president at Intrexon. Um, Matt was also, or Matt is currently the CEO and co-founder of ben Benson Hill, as well as the chairman and co-founder at Edison AgroSciences. With that, I'd like to welcome Matt to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jordan. Appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this with me. I know we've uh, had it on our calendar a while, but um, here we are finally getting it done. Let's. Uh, I just wanted to start this podcast off. It's usually how I do it, but I um, just wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about who's been the most influential person in your life today. Mm, today, well, um, you know, I, I'd say it's not any one person, but um, – in the last five to ten years, frankly, the people that I've been able to uh, to work with on this journey at Benson Hill have, have been pretty hugely influential. Um, and I don't just mean like leadership that we've hired, but the people that were a part and they know who they are of helping think through the formation of the company, uh, the co-founders alongside me, um, who brought you know the brains to the operation really. Um, you know, these, these folks um, have helped shape me as a professional and as a person. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, fortune, you know, put me in a position to be fortunate enough to, to still be leading this, the, the great organization. So, Yeah, for sure. That's a, definitely a unique one I haven't heard before. Most people are usually got it narrowed down to one person or so, but it's pretty neat that you just uh, – say that for the whole organization and all. Um, tell, tell, tell our listeners, let's get into a little bit about brief background about you, where you grew up, went to high school, mm -hmm. college, first real job, maybe sure. startups along the way. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say high school, that's like a St. Louis question. People ask you where you go to high school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Midwest. That's a Midwest uh, thing. That's a Midwest thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I say I just, I didn't, I didn't finish high school, but um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I fortunately did. Uh, but I grew, I grew up in uh, Glen Allen, Virginia. It's a, a suburb outside of, outside of Richmond. Um, I went to high school called Hermitage High School uh, and then Radford University, which is a, about a 10,000 person university in Southwest Virginia. Um, you said this in the intro, I studied finance business. Um, you know, I think just growing up background wise, I, I was a pretty poor student. Um, when I got to college, uh, I had never even visited the campus. It's a kind of a funny story. Um, my cousin had gone there and convinced me to, to apply and I went sight unseen. 
Um, but I, I, I really hit my stride there. I, I uh, fell in love uh, with learning and I was able to grow into a professional role. Uh, um, initially with Third Security, as you mentioned, out of, outside of school, and then and then in Trexon, and then co-founded Benson Hill in 2012. Cool. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about uh, Third Security. You, you just jumped with them right out of school? Did, did you have an internship with them? Or? I did, yeah. Actually, I'd met um, – I was a part of a, a student organization that I'd, I'd helped to co-found um, that focused on uh, letting students invest uh, real money that the foundation had. And um, it was through that experience I met an, uh, an alumnus, R.J. Kirk, who's a, a, a very successful, um, wealthy businessman who uh, had a, his primary office locally, actually. Um, and so, you know, he, he had principally worked in the tech and the life science space, and had built this firm uh, to manage his personal wealth and, and the wealth of some others. It was a bit of a hybrid. It was a, it was a venture firm, but it was really in many respects more of a family office. Um, and he gave me at Third Security a lot of opportunity to work on projects that, I mean, frankly, I was completely unqualified at the time to work on. Um, but that was part of the excitement. I mean, it really fueled my desire to grow, to learn about a lot of things in business building, tech, um, doing deals, negotiating, how to deploy capital, um, people management, legal. And, and I'd say you know, there I had, I had a, an awesome group of colleagues that were, were willing to educate me. You know, I was, as a new kid, I was very young, obviously. Um, but they gave, they gave me um, you know, schooling on, on a lot of things and also the latitude to make decisions. And so I probably, I probably took away from that that, you know, getting things really done is it's all about people. Um, and then as an outgrowth of that, you know, culture, you know, the culture that you, you build or are a part of is, is really important. Yeah. What, what kind of culture do they have there? Well, it, it was just trying to build. Yeah, so this, the firm is pretty small. So I'd say, you know, it had a culture that was really collaborative. I was able to work with people that, you know, they were able to, they, I mean, they, they taught me in many respects most of what I know about business building. So it's really collaborative, um, engaging, um, educational. There wasn't, there weren't politics. There wasn't judgment cast. You know, I, I, I worked with people who are willing to give a lot of themselves to help me and others. And, and that, that resonated with me. Um, and then I'd say separately, you get a chance when you're working in a, in a firm like that to see small and medium-sized businesses um, and, and their cultures, right? You're, you're going and you're doing diligence. You're seeing very, very different ways that leaders have built companies and operate companies and how employees behave um, in different settings. And a lot of it's, of course, related to their personalities and their backgrounds. Um, but but you you appreciate the good, the bad, and the ugly when you go and you get to see that contrasted against a bunch of different companies. Yeah, definitely makes sense. So one question I had was, when did it doesn't seem like you had that much of an ag background growing up. So when did like no. the uh, when did uh, the transformation to ag kind of start occurring? Yeah, that's, I, it was actually while I was there. So. One of my roles at, at Third Security was to to go in and help various portfolio companies evaluate, you know, 
It could be, you know, an operational um, area of investment. It could be a business concept. It, you know, there's a lot of different things that we looked at. And, and it was actually there that I got this exposure in a, ver- a variety of roles within Trexon, the other company you mentioned, um, that I ultimately left Third Security to join, sort of you know, in the family, so to say. But when we were looking at uh, Intrexon in the technology, which is in synthetic biology, um, I was part of a team that was tasked to look around different uh, markets. You know, so energy, industrial, food, ag, um, industrial biosciences. I mean, th- there was a lot of there was a lot of ways that you could deploy synthetic biology and genomics improvements. Um, and and I was on the team that that looked deeply at food and ag, and I kind of fell in love with it, frankly. And you're right. I mean, I don't have any ag background. Nobody in my family, you know, um, grew up on a farm. I had no exposure, you know, to, uh, to that. But, um, but I, I, when, I, when you sort of realize the amount of white space that's in food and ag and how technology could drive impact, global impact, um, I mean, gosh, it was intoxicating for me. And, and that was actually what my, my love for food and ag is what catalyzed my, my conversation with, um, with my boss, our chairman at the time, and about leaving the firm and, and joining this portfolio company to start their food and ag division. Um, so the ag biotech division was an outgrowth of you know, the opportunity being present. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, I, I took that. I took that on and I've, you know, completely fell in love with the space even more since. Yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit about your experience over at Intrexon. They're, a, they're still a publicly traded company, I believe. And were they publicly traded when you were there? Or? No, we were just – so I left about – let's see, I left Third Security and joined a couple years before uh, Intrexon went public. Um, and, you know, when, when I left, this – this focus in or this work in ag biotech, it hadn't even begun. So it was this, it was this opportunity to build something, as I sometimes say, live with my bad habits, right? I mean, when you, when you can go in and out of an organization um, from a venture perspective, you're kind of like a consultant that doesn't actually, you know, live through some of the decisions you're a part of. And when you go in and put your operator hat on, you know, you, you have to build a team. You've got to manage that to outcomes, um, it's a very, very different feeling and environment, one that I actually love. Um, and I think you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, really. But um, and Trexon was the first complete ownership experience for me in that respect. And um, it was um, catalyzed by a small acquisition that we'd done, and, then, um, and there were eight or nine people a part of that, and then we quadrupled the size of the team over the course of a couple years uh, and then in the early 2012, well, mid-2012, you know, mid my, my time there came to an abrupt end, in part because the company was getting ready or gearing up to go public, but the feeling you know, at the time was the company really needed to focus on where some of the more mature assets were in, in the healthcare side of, of its portfolio. And so I and the significant majority of the, the division that I had come into to to found and build were all laid off, and that was a pretty pretty humbling experience. Um, you know, go home and you and you tell your wife, who at the time, my wife was four months pregnant with our first child, and and say, uh, yeah, I don't have a job anymore. Um, 
and uh, and that that kind of catalyzed a whole different line of thinking. And in retrospect, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. But of course, at the time, it it, it feels pretty terrible. And um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for all those all the all the work that was done there and the people I got a chance to work with there and what I learned there. Um, but um, but I, it was it was unfinished business in some ways, which is why within three months of or two months of leaving there, I, I was pretty convinced that I, I wanted to found this company, Benson Hill. Cool. What did uh, did anybody else come over with you to Benson Hill that they laid off? Or? Yeah, there was one fellow that that um, that really helped, you know, in, in many respects, sort of behind the scenes co-found the company initially. Um, and, uh, and, and we still keep in touch loosely, but he, he is, as I like to say, he had to go get a real job. So, um, <laughs> I, I told my wife be a when I decided man. to do it. But yeah, I couldn't, it was, it was June of 2012. And I, I remember sitting at the dinner table and I told my wife, I said, uh, honey, I, I, I don't want to go get a real job. <laughs> and you, you can imagine the way, the way she looked at me, um, sort of blankly, but I don't know. Hopefully she she doesn't have any regrets. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on in the podcast was it definitely seems like you're clearly about innovation and coming up with new things. You're the founder of a few companies, you sat on a few boards. I just really want to know what motivates you to constantly be on the edge of breaking innovation and how you continuously come up with uh, new ideas every day. Hmm. Seems like you started um, started that in 2012, yeah. and maybe before. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I think I, I, I'm of the belief that um, it, a lot of in a, what makes you know that innovation isn't really invention. You know that that a lot of innovation is about um, rethinking, reshaping, shuffling you're recombining ideas that other people have had. Um, and so it's, it's about, in many respects, your willingness to be open-minded, to think differently, um, sort of be convinced in, in ways that you don't really know anything because, I mean, more often than not, we really don't know all that much. And so I, I just I pride myself in asking lots of questions. Um, and people sometimes think I'm asking questions to test them, and maybe maybe occasionally, but really 99% of the time I'm asking questions because I'm just curious and I want to know. And, um, and I, think that's the, I think that's where innovation is really born, is that you, you, um, you find big challenges or problems um, are oftentimes really just smaller challenges, you know, groupings of smaller challenges or smaller problems. And if you, can, if you can figure out what those barriers are, and how to solve for them in, a, in smaller packages, it seems less, less burdensome, and, um, and you can reduce risk in smaller bites. It becomes much more digestible. So, so for me, I, I'm a generalist, um, so I don't, I don't know a whole lot about any one thing, but I, I, I like to think I know a lot about uh, or a little bit about a lot of things. And so I, I tend to try to just connect dots and, and talk to smart people, and um, that has led me to, um, you know, to come up with approaches um, that aren't in many respects novel, but maybe reapplied or um, thought about a little bit differently. And then, and then, it, and then, it, and then comes the hard work. I mean, ideas are, your, are ubiquitous, right? Um, 
everybody's got a bunch of ideas, but but then comes the hard work of actually getting that stuff done, and um, and and scaling leadership and scaling innovation and and deploying it in lots of lots of ways. So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but you know, yeah, that's that's kind, of, that's kind of how I think about it at least. Yeah, bouncing off that, I know. Saying you're a generalist, and a lot of people say it's hard to uh, really become great at something when you're a generalist. It seems like it's definitely worked out for you now. I just want to ask you, if you had to go back and do it again, would you do what you did, or would you rather, or would you, let's say, become an expert in just like one field? Hmm, that's a great question. I've thought about that before. Um, I I don't have any. Me and my dad have the, the debate path. all the time about it. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> oh yeah. And, and what is the and what, is, all, and what is the outcome? What have you decided? The outcome is we're usually continue to be generalist, but I mean we're all over the place doing different stuff, and we're just like, man, maybe we should just hone in and be like the best at one thing. But I don't know. It seems to be working out for us so far, like you. But yeah, I, don't know. I thought I'd just pick I, your brain I, on it. No, I I tend to be of a similar. <laughs> mindset I, I have no regrets um, I, I think as much as anything it's about learning how to think you know it doesn't really matter if you're a history major or an engineer or a scientist or a, uh, or a business major I mean if you can learn how to think creatively I mean wh- how many of us really you know graduated from school or studied something and then you know that constitutes the majority of what we ever need to know I think that most most people would tell you that that's a crazy concept. So you, you in many yeah. ways you, you you learn how to think ideally, and then that those are the tools that allow you to to learn and to grow into whatever area if it's specialized or not. And, um, I, I I I think I'd side with you guys that I'd prefer to just know a little bit about a few things. Yeah, just go, just get after it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um. um so I wanted to I wanted to touch a lot on kind of in this first part I want to transition a little bit and I wanted to touch on um, how much money you guys have raised um, over at Benson Hill I think the only other person that's raised more money on the podcast I've had today is David Perry over at Indigo and I read uh, you guys have raised I read it online it's 132 million since over 132 million since 2012 is that correct or yeah that's about right mm-hmm. yeah. okay cool. Which that's that's a ton of money for a startup and something a lot of founders don't ever accomplish in their careers. I just kind of wanted to pick your brain on raising money. Is there some type of a uh, trick behind raising this kind of money for a startup, or is it simply just having good ideas? I mean, I know a lot of uh, ag tech companies out there struggle to get money every day. So, I mean, we talked to them. Yeah. Well. I don't know of any tricks. I, if somebody's got some, I'm all ears. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'd make two observations. I think, um, and, and the first one's probably more so to companies that operate in, uh, in biology or um, you know, biotech realm. I, a lot of the early part of your life cycle as a company is, is just to demonstrate that what you have works. Um, so coming to the table and, and just being really transparent about that with investors, I think it's pretty important. Um, you, you, you're not going to have all the answers, and if you come to the table and assume you do, you're, you're just 
asking for it. I mean, I think you, you've got to you've got to de-risk early on. Um, you know, your where, and and you've got to then be thinking as that happens how to ultimately monetize it. So you're planning for success, um, but the go-to-market strategy comes in time. That. I mean, in terms of like how or the trick, you know, I'd, I'd say, I've said this before, it's the best advice, if you could call it that, that I could offer. And that's all of the most engaged, um, supportive investors, backers at, at Benson Hill, they were aware of us months or even years before they actually wrote a check into the company. Um, so they had a chance to get to know us, you know, see our plans grow and evolve, and I think most importantly, get a chance to see the team execute. You know, so you, I'm gonna say what you, you know, say what you're going to do, go do it, and then and then come back. Um, and that's been really important. I mean, for each financing that we've gotten um, completed, you know, we've come back and been able to talk about what we've accomplished, and and then, yeah, you know, like I said, maybe it was six or 12 months, maybe it was three years, but that, that was the, in, in many respects, the catalyzing factor is that relationship that had been built um, and that transparency, frankly, that had been offered that I think convinced people to, to step up and, you know, and to, uh, you know, and to, and to come into some of the rounds. Yeah, so have most, have most of the funds that have invested, have they approached you guys or have you approached them first? Oh, I think we've approached uh, 95% of the capital that's come into the company. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wasn't sure. So you guys, did you guys approach Google as well? We did. In fact, that's actually a good story. I mean, of of what I mentioned a minute ago, I met Andy Wheeler, the partner at, at, at GV, who um, who's a, on our board and and followed the company. Gosh, I mean, it would have been. 2015. It was the time of our Series A, and mm-hmm. um, so he was familiar with us. Um, we kept in touch. Um, you know, when I was out in San Francisco, you know, maybe once a year, would meet and give him an update as to how things were going, whether or not we were raising money at the time. And um, you know, and ultimately in 2018, when we closed our Series C, uh, GV led it. And um, yeah, but he he was at that point, you know, aware of the technology, he was aware of the business plans, he was had a very open conversations with him about what we were doing and not doing and how we were thinking about things. And, um, and so, yeah, long story, but, you know, we had met some milestones and grown our scope, and, um, and, and he was convinced enough in, in 2018 to step up and take a leadership position. Cool. So, what what's the process like um, with Google? Is it similar to, you know, I know they're probably a much bigger fund, but is it is it similar to like working with iSelect, or is it a much different process? How does that exactly work? Well, you know, iSelect's got a unique model, um, which you know was you know working really well uh, for those guys and working well for portfolio companies that they get excited about. But it's also a different flavor of, you know, more traditional venture approach. Um, I, 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 I would say, you know, GV in contrast to other venture firms is really similar. I mean, they're very sophisticated, smart, diverse. I mean, they've got a large portfolio, obviously, um, 
you know, they're larger, as you put it, than, than many others. But um, they take a, a very similar approach through the diligence process. And um, I'd say the relationship, though I don't know um, outside of a relationship with, with Andy, a huge number of, of those folks or, or their companies, um, you know, our, our experience was really similar to what we undertook with some of the other um, you know, pretty sophisticated venture firms in the uh, in in the category. Yeah, I just didn't know. Um, I'm sure a lot of people don't have the opportunity to work with Google, and I'm sure a lot of them. One reason I asked, I'm sure a lot of them don't approach them because they might think they're too big or think the process is scary. I, I wasn't sure either. I've never done it myself, so. <laughs> well, I, I don't think we were. I don't think we were scared, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Can't be scared. No, that's what we always say. You scared of it or something? No, not scared. <laughs> so I don't. I don't think I've had a founder on my podcast yet that's uh, started with and built a company as long as you've been with Vincent Hill as today. I I'd just love for you to share with us maybe some pitfalls or hurdles you've had to overcome as a startup along the way that's uh, played a key role in the company's success. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always say the biggest hurdle, frankly, is that first institutional round of capital, and we were no exception. Um, we wanted to raise the venture capital into the company, you know, the year after we founded the company, 2013, and we began, you know, what was ultimately a multi-year process to, you know, to, to identify a Series A lead. Now we were we were fairly successful in raising seed financing from some some early investors, um, a couple angels, and we were able to to operate the business such that we could achieve milestones and, and convince ourselves and start to convince others that you know we knew what we were doing and we were onto something. Um, but but man, like getting that Series A done was really really tough, um, immensely challenging, and you know, we had to be pretty relentless about it. Um, and, and, and I say in retrospect, I mean, um, I hope they don't have any regrets either, but the, the patience of the investors that were around the table for many months approaching, you know, what ultimately was the close of our Series A in, in the fall of 2015, I'm sorry, yeah, 2000, fall of 2015, I mean, that was unusual. I mean, the, the group of investors that uh, Middleland Capital led that round, um, Mercury Fund, Prelude Ventures. Um, there was, you know, four or five others on that Series A list. There's a lot of investors in, a, in what was ultimately an $8 million round, but they had patience and stuck with us through that process, knowing that, you know, the, the deal had come together and then fallen apart for reasons out of our control and come together and then fallen apart. And it was a fits and starts process um, that was pretty – uh, wrenching, but um, that was a, a big hurdle that we had to overcome. And um, and I'd say you asked, I think you said like what what are the things or thing that's played to the success? I mean, I can't say enough again. I I feel like I've um, beaten the same drum, but you know the people that we had the support of and who we were able to bring on, um, finding people that align with your values. Um, finding colleagues who you can bring on and learn from and push the organization. I mean, without these folks, I mean, we undoubtedly would not be where we are today. 
Yeah, it definitely seems like you got a good crew over there. I've met a lot of them at many shows, and you guys have been a part of ours. I've uh, worked with some of them one-on-one. Seems like awesome crew, and um, I'd uh, I'd definitely be happy to be on board. I know. Uh, I guess I, we're going to talk a little bit about you, but before I jump into that, I like to uh, get a little bit out of my. Uh, people I interview for personal use as well. So I would uh, love to know the best piece of advice you have for a young entrepreneur like myself who's trying to start a few businesses of their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I, I think um, if, I had to, if I had to summarize it in one phrase, a, a, a former colleague very early in my career told me this, and I think it applies um, particularly in the entrepreneurial environment, and it is that the only constant is change. Um, you know, there are, and, and you know this, I mean, you're starting your business and, and, and getting it up and, and running and scaled. and it, You know, there are dynamics that influence the success or, or failure of your business, anybody's business, um, and, and they are always evolving. Um, the technology that other people are using, that you're using, the cost structure, the markets, the customers, the talent. I mean, all of these things um, changing is, is in many respects what provides this opportunity for small and nimble innovative businesses to, to, to grow um, and, and to succeed. Um, because, I mean, we certainly don't have the sophistication and scale that you know, a major player has, right? Um, the economies mm-hmm. of scale. So, so I think you know when when you acknowledge that the only constant is change, which you which you're forced to do is is make decisions, and 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 making decisions fast, and be will, being willing to, to 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 fail, to move off of them, and to shift. Um, you know, if the feedback loops that you have tell you that you need to, um, without getting, I mean, I kind, of, kind of caveat this, without getting like too over overly emotional or overthinking it. Um, I think that's the that's that's a huge. Uh, if you can do that, you're really positioned above many others. And if you because if you pause too long, you die. And it's just that's just mm-hmm. the way it, that's the way it works with small businesses. Yeah, on the, like fast decisions, you're saying how many of like those fast decisions that you make are actually successful? Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully the majority ultimately. Um, but I'm a real I am a real believer that um, making decisions quickly is far more than making necessarily the right decision. I'd rather get it 60% right, but make decisions you know fast in 100% of the time, than get it you know 80 or 90% right, but not be able to make those decisions except you know fast except for half the time. Um, yeah, definitely makes sense. Yeah. Let's uh. Yeah, let's, let's think that's a good transitioning point to jump in a little bit about you. Um, let's move aside from your career. Just tell us from a personal perspective, and I want our listeners kind of to know what makes Matt tick outside of work. So uh, let's just start with your family. I know you got uh, two boys and a girl. Uh, you, want to tell, mm-hmm. you want to tell us a little bit about them? Your yeah, wife, you can tell yeah. us about your wife uh, as well. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife and I, uh, Kelly, we've been married for, what year is it? Uh, almost 14 years. I think I got that right. Um, <laughs> we have three great kids. Yeah, you're right, and you're right, boy, girl, boy. 
seven, five, and uh, my youngest will be three next week. Um, they're they're terrific. You know, my my oldest is. We're all cooped up in the same house, as you as you probably appreciate. So um, <laughs> you were having fun, but they're they're maniacs. Um, they keep things really lively. Uh, they're exhausting. Um, but, um, but my oldest is a, he's become a sudden overnight avid reader, which I absolutely adore and love. Um, my little girl is, uh, doing, it's a so funny virtual ballet. They do, they do, so she has a, yeah. have a, I, my wife's iPad that she's doing ballet with the, the class. It's pretty hilarious. Um, my youngest is, he's just a terror maniac of the bunch, but. Um, yeah, he's, it's, it's good that he's so cute because I'll tell you what, I mean, it would be anyway. Um, but yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's the one that would just rather go into the, into the yard and play in the mud all day, which is totally cool with me. So anyway, but they're great. They keep things lively around here. Cool. Are you guys, uh, still building your new house? I heard you're getting settled in St. Louis. Uh, yeah, yeah, we uh we finished the house. Funny story, we finished the house in December and moved in. But this is, gets back to my youngest, but we have no yard because it, the thing finished in the middle of winter. So we literally have this mud pit around us. It's pretty it's pretty comical. I I've, I've taken videos of my kids like literally sinking a foot deep in the mud and just it's just hilarious, but uh, but no, thanks for asking. We're we're glad yeah. to be settled. <laughs> yeah, we've been there before, and I'm I'm about to move now, and I think I'm about to Airbnb the one I'm currently in. So I'm trying to uh, get a mattress delivered over to my new place, and I'm just going to live off a mattress for a while until I get it figured yeah. out and but, the delivery stuff gets squared away. Maybe you can go back and forth. One will be like your office. It's like going to work to your own place for a yeah. while. COVID, COVID, yeah. uh, uh, COVID style. Yeah. When are you, when are you guys going back to work or back in the office? Yeah, we're going to do like a phased approach to this new building. You might remember we're building a new headquarters, um, just up the road on the, 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 the campus of the Danforth center. And, um, though things are slowed down, the, the crews are still, you know, really making great progress and it should be, we should get an occupancy permit in June and we'll start moving in in phases starting in mid-June. But until then, we've really let um, everybody continue to work from home, and except for the uh, this, this smaller crew of critical folks, which I mean, these guys are incredible. Uh, we've got you know, teams of people um, you know, on site in the labs for the work that you really can't stop. I mean, you, you need the you know, plants need water, and we've got you know, processes in the pipeline that have to continue, but uh, these guys have put in place some, some um, you know, really disciplined uh, safety protocols uh, to keep everybody healthy, and knock on wood, we haven't had any issues, um, you know, so the, the teams are doing a really nice job, and they'll, they'll be a part of, of course, transitioning into this new headquarters here in the next couple, three months. Yeah, I think we're going to we're gonna try to. We're all remote right now, but I think we're gonna to try to get in there Monday and see if a few of us can get in there and get some stuff done without uh, mm-hmm. contaminating each other. <laughs> I think Social we've all been pretty strict about. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think we're all gonna have our own office, so it shouldn't be bad. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I was talking to Melanie some, and she said you're a pretty big fan of St. Louis and the Ozarks. Um, 
what are some of your favorite places to go in those areas? Well, we just so we at Labor Day last year we went to the Lake of the Ozarks for the first time, and we're in Sunrise Beach, I believe. And then we loved it. I mean, absolutely loved it. And went back. Actually, just got back a couple of days ago. We went down for another nine days. I think the the thought was, well, if we're going to shelter in place, why don't we shelter in place on a on a lake with a yard and a playset? Um, so that was a nice reprieve. But um, but yeah, I actually love St. Louis. Um, it's been it's been great getting to know the city. I like the people here. Um, great food scene. Um, you know, that lot lots to love, even though we're still learning. Yeah, yeah. Do you travel? Do you travel a lot or? With work you know, or in less so. You know, less so since being on the ground full time here. I was, you know, as, as you. You might remember I commuted for for a long time to St. Yep. Louis, and um, so I still do some travel. You know, well, not right now, of course, but uh, you know, when things gear back up, I'll be on the road a little bit. I think I think we, like many others, are going to work very slowly and carefully back into that routine. But um, but yeah, it's it, you know sometimes it's really important to be face to face and to visit operations of our partners and. Once in a while, go to go to conferences and that kind of thing. And again, when all yeah, of that for sure. back up. <laughs> yeah, I've had some traveling crazy people on here before that are going all over the world and stuff like that. Figure I'd ask you. I don't know if you know him, but Howard was on here. Gets and I'm sure you've met him, but he was like oh, yeah. down at Pablo yeah. Escobar's house. And he's telling oh. some crazy, crazy travel stories on here. <laughs> I don't know if you got anything that much, but no, I can't. I've got nothing to top Howard's journeys. I'm uh, though I do I do love reading reading all of his stuff. He's uh, oh yeah, we yeah we uh, we definitely enjoy it too. Where's Howard this week? So, um, let's uh, talk about a little bit um, what you're doing now as the CEO and co-founder at Benson Hill. Just uh, let's just start off by you telling us a little bit about what you guys do and the company itself for some of the listeners that don't may not know. Sure, sure. So so Benson Hill uh, uh was founded in 2012. I, I think we said that um and we're we're focused on improving crops to make better food ingredients. So so namely using genomics and uh I'd call it the convergence of computational tools and biological tools like gene editing to to breed for and edit and and develop um you know, better, and when I say better, I mean more sustainable, healthier, better tasting food and ingredients. And I'd, I'd say the, the, if, you, if you look at the value chain, one of the big differences between us and other companies that have historically invested in seed innovation and, and making better crops is that we're, we're very focused on the whole value chain. And so uh, we think that you can empower innovation inside of this value chain in ways that, you know, the, are lacking today um, and look at more than just, you know, commodity uh, row crop development, but you can look at how to make specialty crops from, from things like soybeans. It doesn't have to be a small acre crop, but, you know, specialty uh, and, and um, high-value premium, you know, improvements that are not just around yield, but, of course, around quality traits and characteristics that consumers want. And so bridging that you know, grower need with the consumer need is a major 
you know, philosophy around which our team is, is really dedicated and has, has done a lot of work in, you know, four or five different crops internally. And I think that'll grow in the next few years. Cool. What about, uh, I know you mentioned the headquarters a little bit. I've heard a little bit about it online and you guys got flexible re- research labs, shared workspaces. I've heard you got fitness centers in there, yoga studios. What, uh, what's that looking like? You well, excited? I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Just but, a surprise uh, to you? I'm, I, it's all going to be a surprise. Uh, I, yeah. Um, the developer uh, has, has, has led an effort. I mean, of course, we've been collaborating really closely with those guys um, uh, and Clayco and, and Larry Chapman here in St. Louis. I mean, these guys are the real deal, and they are building from what I can tell is just a world-class facility we're all super excited to get into. Um, you mentioned some of the things it's got. We're going to have a, a really nice uh, laboratory set up um, so that we can showcase you know, the work that's being done throughout the pipeline. Uh, we'll have about two and a half floors of a four-story building to start. Uh, you know, we'll we'll build in over time additional uh, food science capabilities there, and um, you know, there's growth facilities. Um, you know, so, such that we can really put all of the functional areas of the company under one roof, and um, you know, and, and still have some room to grow, which is which is great. Um, you know. Of course, in the meantime, you know, in the next six to twelve months, we've actually had to to um, work with the developers and and the design folks to come up with strategies to make sure that uh, we can maintain you know social distancing and we can ensure you know that we we've you know ensure that we can abide by the protocols that we've set you know to make sure everybody stays safe and and that's pretty important. That's you know obviously a curveball in this process, but I don't think it's going to – it's certainly not going to uh, lessen the, the impact and, you know, the, posit, you know, the positive environment we're going to be in, but, you know, it will be a little different than we maybe envisioned it three or four months ago. Yeah, is this uh, it's located by the Danforth Center, right, or am I wrong? Yeah, it's right, right on the campus, right across – there's the Danforth, and then you've got the Bridge, bridge Park, or Bridge Building 1 um, – in the, behind it, and then immediately to its east is uh, is the Benson Hill building. Um, it's actually the building I think is called Edge at Bridge, um, but I'm going to call it the Benson Hill building for now at least. Cool. Um, I know you guys recently rebranded as well. Changed the uh, changed the name a little bit. Changed the logo some. I think yeah. it, I think in ag a lot of people really drop the ball on branding and don't realize how important branding actually is. So I was just maybe wanting you to share with us maybe your reasoning behind the move and why you thought it was mm-hmm. so important. Yeah, the, well, the biggest change really, I mean, the, the feel and the look obviously changed, but the, the, the material and you know, word change was, was dropping the biosystems. So we were Benson Hill Biosystems is really the founding uh, founding entity, um, but we found that really Benson Hill um, retains the values. Uh, the, the name means something, and I'll tell you that story in a second. But you know, it, it better represented in our mind our brand, our brand, and our holistic view of food and ag, and and of the consumer and the grower. 
and our brand promise, you know, really think across that value chain and, and provide benefits to all the stakeholders. Um, so while we're still a tech company at, at our core, um, and we're focused on developing, using technology and science to develop great products, we're, we're fundamentally about providing ultimately food and ingredients that are aligned with um, your health and, and, and our values. Um, so, so you know, on the Benson Hill, I said I'd give you the background, but uh, Andy Benson and Robin Hill uh, are actually where the name where the name Benson Hill comes from. Um, and these two guys were, you know, really seminal researchers in, in the field of photosynthesis, um, who never really got their due. I mean, they they didn't get the recognition that they deserved for um, the discoveries and the innovations that they they made, which contribute you know a great deal to the to the field of, of, of uh, photosynthesis and photosynthesis research, which is the most important, you know, reactions on Earth that gives us the oxygen we breathe. So, um, mm-hmm. so it's to pay, you know, to pay homage to them. And we even, we did even think about, you know, when we were undertaking this exercise last year, we even thought about renaming the company. But there's a lot of people who, um, you know, we're really strongly felt that these values are embodied in our work and the people that we, um, you know, work with and, um, and that it's, it's, it's a good story to tell. And so we kept the Benson and the Hill and, and uh, kept it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool story. I didn't know the name behind Benson Hill either. So something new, uh, yeah. today as well. Um, I'll send a little you the more blog. We've got a, we've got a blog yeah. on our website about it. A little more in-depth, for sure. I'll definitely check it out. Um, a little more into ag, though. My dad always talks about fragmentation. I'm sure you know. He said where, the, where there's fragmentation, there's an opportunity. How big are some of the opportunities in the ag space coming up, and what are you mm-hmm. uh, seeing on the horizon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. We've got one of our investors um, and board members has used the term, you know, the, the riches are in the niches. Uh, similar, similar piece of um, wisdom. I, I, I think r- right now um, you can't have a conversation about specialty or about um, where the market's heading without talking about protein. Um, it's all over the place. I mean, we're hearing it even in the COVID environment in the news. You know, alternative protein, uh, plant-based protein. Um, this is this is real. This is this is definitely in flight. Uh, it's going to be a massive market, um, and we think that the grower deserves to participate in that. I think you know the 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 farmer has got to have. We've got to do a better job of building a bridge between what the farmer can provide in that equation and what the consumer is demanding and willing to pay for. Um, their premium product opportunities, um, th- that space is riddled with them, frankly. And, um, you know, this has become a big part of our focus as a company is we've got, uh, we think, the best uh, soybean, pro- you know, high-protein high soybean assets in the industry. And um, we, we know that they have certain quality characteristics that consumers want, and we intend to... Um, you know, put in place a, a, a model that allows the grower to participate in that value creation opportunity. Um, we announced two or three months ago uh, UHP, ultra-high-protein soybean, 
we announced very recently um, 2020 contracted acres, you know, at 30,000 contracted acres this year. That number is going to go up really substantially next year. Um, and it's, I say that because while um, fragmentation uh, implies specialty and niche, as I mentioned a minute ago, it doesn't necessarily have to be. I, there's no one out there saying, I want less nutrition in my products. I want, you know, more anti-nutrients in my products. And, and, and so to the extent that we can begin providing at a greater and greater scale these opportunities, I think it starts to force a, a conversation around you know, some of the decommoditization or recommoditization, however you'd like to think about it, around some mm -hmm. of what, what, the specs, what the specs are in the market. And if, and if we in North America want to get serious about competing on protein where, you know, South America, you know, may, maybe is, you know, ahead of us and China's demanding it, well, then why the heck not? And we've certainly got the tools and the tech to do it. We've got the, the sophisticated grower infrastructure. We've got the supply chain. Um, we don't have to tear it all down and rebuild it. We just can use genomics as a really amazing lever, you know, to create opportunity across the board. And, um, yeah, I, I, I look forward to us playing a, a more and more significant role in that. Um, but the grower, you know, the grower is going to step up and I hope be able to increase their profitability too. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, um, it doesn't have to stay niche for terribly long. Yeah. What are, uh, are you seeing, are any of the growers you guys have recently brought on, are they going uh, direct to the consumer with your soybeans or? Well, we're really providing that bridge, right? I mean, we're contracting yeah. their, their harvest, and then we're we're in direct dialogue with folks across the value chain. So, you know, sometimes we'll be in dialogue with, a, let's say, a processor who has customers, and we want them to have access to this innovation so they can service their customers. And maybe their customers are the CPGs or other food system innovators, but they, they want to invest with us in creating premium products so that they can differentiate in other cases, we've had conversations directly with folks, um, you know, close to the, right up to the consumer, and and you know, same same thing, similar thing. So so we're not we're not saying that it's got to be one group or the other. I think that the phrase we sometimes use internally is, we've got to be thoughtful about meeting the the customer, whoever the customer is, where they are, and some of these are multinational global companies, and some of these are mom and pop you know, um, folks that just want a differentiated ingredient or um, differentiated soybean. I mean, you know, so there's customers that are coming in all shapes and sizes in all parts of the value chain. And we believe that if you can move, if you can take genomic-based innovation, seed innovation, and give them access to that, again, wherever they are, um, that it becomes a win-win. There's plenty of value to share across, you know, across that, that value chain. Are you guys messing with blockchain any on any of this or leaving that to someone else? Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I have, uh, I, have, I have done some cursory looking and so has our team on this. We haven't done anything um, bold or, or um, specific even, but it's definitely on our radar. Um, and, cool. and from what I'm gathering, yeah, from what I'm gathering, it's going to play a role, but we're we're not there yet. Yeah. So 
I guess speaking of the future, where, where do you see Benson Hill in the next three to five years? Well, we've got um, several product launches in the next five years. Some are in, in flight right now. Um, so I, I'd say you know, three to five years from now, you, we ideally have uh, been able to satisfy a fair amount of the demand on the on the protein products that we're that we're launching in multiple crops. Um, we we've been pretty public about our our, our commercial partnership with Bex, um, uh, which is a, 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 a corn seed brand, and we've got a a very fruitful co-development, um, co-commercialization part- partnership with them to launch a, a photosynthetic efficiency trait for corn and to make more sustainable corn crop. Um, that in the next three to five years will go to market. Uh, and then we've, we've, we've even got some preliminary work that uh, we're doing in the, in the veg category. And I think vegetables will, while it's not a next two to, two to three year thing for Benson Hill and a um, genomics, commercial genomics capacity, we think that there's some, some great opportunity there and we've got some great partners um, that you know, I think are going to help catalyze that supply chain as well and, and create more, more healthy options, more tasty options for, for consumers you know, from the seed all the way down to the shelf. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you guys got... Um quite the vision going on. I know uh, your time's pretty valuable and you got to run and we're about out of time, but before we wrap things up, I'd just love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Matt Crisp. Hmm. Well, I, I, uh, I told you about um, that experience um, leaving in Trexon and I, I said that in hindsight, you know, that maybe that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I, I'll share this. Um, I won't say the whole whole parable, but I, you can look it up. But the this fellow Alan Watts, I was reading I'm reading some of his stuff lately, and I've told this a few times. But it, there's this parable about you know a farmer who takes a loan to um, buy a horse, and and then the horse runs away, and farmer uh, the his neighbors and the people that he took this loan from are you know, giving him a hard time. And, and then the horse comes back with a whole, um, you know, with a whole group of horses. And, and then they're like, oh, it was so bad, and now this is so good. And, and then his son's riding a horse, uh, and, and he falls off, and he breaks his leg. And, he, and they're like, oh, it's so bad. And then the, the military comes and, and drafts all the young uh, the boys, and, and he doesn't get drafted because he's got a broken leg. And it's like, oh, it's so good. And, and it goes on and on. But the point is, is that, lots of things happen that we don't expect and that we don't control and that in the moment um, it could be good and it could be bad. <laughs> and we sometimes think we know and a lot of times it may just not be that way. So that's that's something that's sitting with me right yeah. now. Yeah, that's some good life advice for sure. But um, I guess uh, that's it for our Farm Tank session today and I appreciate you being on the podcast and taking the time to do this with me, and I'm uh, definitely sure we'll be in touch in the future. And um, For everyone that doesn't know, we're Benton Hill is one of the founding partners over at our FarmCon show, and we've uh, loved being a, 
them being a part of the organization, and I'm uh, working one-on-one -on -one with some of their team on Ag Swag, and we uh, honestly couldn't ask for a better partnership with them, and we're uh, blessed to work with people like this. But uh, just want to say thank you again, Matt. Well, thank you, and appreciate you having me, and also grateful for our partnership. So, take care. Yep. Yep. We'll talk soon. See you, buddy.